We always hear about the bad parts of academia. What are the good parts? Yeah. Um, like I said, I love my job. <laughs> but I think, oh gosh, the, the students that I get to work with, like seeing them come in and where they're at and then watching their growth over the course of their you know, trajectories, whatever that looks like, and getting to support them in, um, you know, finding whatever position is going to make them happy and seeing how they land and what they do afterwards, like just getting to watch that process and that journey for me is just really awesome. I love that. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Kayla Reed. Kayla is Assistant Professor of Couple and Family Therapy and Public Policy Research Fellow at the University of Iowa. And on today's episode, we talk about her life as a faculty member, why she loves her job as a professor, and what grad students who want to become professors should do to maximize their chances of nabbing that elusive tenure-track job. If you want to make a career in academia after graduating, this episode is definitely for you. I am so excited to be able to share my conversation with Kayla with you today. Be sure to stick around to the very end to hear her responses to some extra fun questions. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, Kayla, thank you for talking with me today. It is so good to chat with you. Um, could you just kind of like position yourself professionally so that everyone can kind of know who you are? Yep. So I'm an assistant professor of couple and family therapy at the University of Iowa. So assistant meaning I'm at the first tier of being a professor, so I'm not tenured yet. Um, and I'm working in a couple and family therapy doctoral program is my home. Um, I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Iowa, and I'm an approved supervisor. Awesome. And so full disclosure, Kayla and I went to our master's program together, so we have known each other uh, for a decade Oh gosh, or more. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, and so the question that I usually like to start with is, so you've, you've, you've done the thing, you've become the tenure track professor. Um, is this where you thought you would be if we were to like go back, back to those master's days? Like what was in your head in terms of where you're going to end up professionally? Yeah, this is not where I thought I would be at all. Um, but I also don't know that I had any idea what I was going to do. I was very much one of those people who was, I don't know, kind of along for the ride to see where things were going to take me. Um, and so when I started the master's program, it seemed like it was the right next step. So I didn't necessarily have an end goal in mind, but I also never thought I would become a professor at the same time. Yeah, for sure. And so before becoming a professor, you did the master's program in marriage family therapy uh, with me and f four others, three others. Yeah, yeah I'm at four. Mm -hmm. um, at the University of Kentucky, way back in the day. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to become a therapist? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's multiple levels for me. I think some of it is like lifelong story and experiences. And then some of it 
is more school-related experiences. So the school one is easier <laughs> to explain. Um, so when I went into my undergrad, I also had no idea what I wanted to do. I actually went in undecided and didn't declare my major until, I don't know, like the end of my sophomore year. And I still at that point didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to work with people in some capacity, like helping people in some way. And in my major, I had to do a couple of field internships. And so I had the opportunity to intern at the family therapy clinic on my campus and getting to watch what family therapy looked like and talking to the therapists. Um, it just kind of clicked like, oh, this makes sense. This feels like it might fit me well. And I hadn't found anything else that felt like that. Mm -hmm. um, so being at the end of my undergrad and not having a clear direction, the one thing that felt like it might work was to do family therapy. Um, family life-wise, I think a lot of it was growing up with different experiences where my family, myself would have benefited from family therapy or any kind of therapy. Yeah. Um, and so just knowing that I wish that would have been something I had had and wanting to find some way to like put forth into the universe something that I didn't get um, to make things better for other folks was kind of my motivating factor and just wanting to help and work with people at all. And I'm a pretty good people person. I like to talk to people. I'm pretty extroverted. So that also just matched personally as well. Yeah, for sure. And so that was a two-year program. And when did you, well, obviously it was in your second year, you were like, oh, I'll apply to PhD programs. Because um, we were doing that at the same time. When did you, what was the, like, uh, what led to you applying to PhD programs? What started that conversation for you? Yeah, I didn't really fully think of it as an option or something that I was going to do until pretty close to the deadlines to apply in your second year. Because I remember going to, I think it was just the big WMFC conference in the what would have been the fall of our second year. And I remember having a conversation at that conference about, you know, are you going to apply to PhD programs? And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I remember that there was a, a week where one day I had a, like a full client day. So I was going to have like eight, nine sessions, just back to back, slammed all day. Um, and I woke up that morning, just no motivation to get, to get out of bed, like dreading going in, dreading the day, just did not want to do it. And then the following day, I didn't have any clients and I had a mixture of class and research meetings um and then like time to work on stuff and when I woke up I did not feel that way mm. um, I I don't know that I was like excited to get out of bed but I wasn't dreading it um and I got out of bed just fine and didn't go into the day with that kind of miserable mindset and so I realized at the end of the day uh I I need to listen to that but that's telling me something and so I realized that I, I couldn't do clinical work full time and that that's not where my passion was. And so even though I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it, I knew that I needed more options and I knew that mm. it could give me more options. Yeah. And do you remember how many programs you applied to? 
I applied to, ooh, I think I applied to three and had a fourth one that was a rolling emissions as a backup that I didn't apply to, but was planning on it if I didn't get into the other ones. Hmm. Okay. And then you ended up going to, was it FSU? Yep, Florida State. Okay, what about Florida State kind of like drew you in? Yeah, I think because I was able to interview at the other two schools that I applied to. Um, so I was actually able to kind of get experience at all three to compare and fit, like what fit, what felt the best um, really kind of was what drew me to FSU. Just the environment there, the people there, the peers that I was interviewing with that would potentially be my cohort members. Um, mm. It just felt right. Um, and there are people, I think at each place faculty wise that I knew interest wise, at least what I thought was my interest. Um, I knew that I would have somebody to work with. Um, but yeah, mainly just if that's what felt, felt right. And, um, you know, Tallahassee is a lot prettier than Lubbock, Texas. I totally forgot that we interviewed at Lubbock together. Yeah. Yeah. That did happen. Um, so you arrive at FSU. How did you end up determining what you wanted to study? Yeah, I had some experiences from my master's program because we had to do the thesis there. And so I kind of just decided to continue on with what I had been doing mm. for my thesis. Because at my thesis defense, my committee had said, um, you know, this is a good start. You'll probably need more participants in order to get this published. And so um, I went to FSU and I collected more participants or collected more data from more participants. And so I kind of just was continuing in, in that vein. And then I had a couple of different other lines of things that I was potentially interested in. Um, and I remember I had one class that the faculty member was like a rock star towards the end of her career, has like seen and done it all. And we had to talk about kind of the different things we were interested in. And I remember one of the things I was interested in, she was like, yeah, no, that probably won't end up working because that's not fundable at all. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool, I guess. That helps me eliminate one of them. Um, so that kind of helped narrow it down. And then some of the experiences I had with my advisor, getting to do different research with her, just gave me more exposure to different parts of the content area I was interested in to help me figure out like, okay, I don't really want to focus in on this area. But maybe I do want to focus in. I keep on gravitating towards this area. My questions really keep coming into this area. And then it's kind of slowly evolved over the years um, based on, you know, different things that I was exposed to things that I got to read somewhat some of the classes I took. Um, but really a lot of it was kind of the outside work that I was doing with peers or with my advisor that really kind of helped me to slowly shift into where I ended up falling. Mm. At, at what point did you know that you wanted to be a professor? Was it before you even applied for the PhD program? No, it definitely wasn't. I think I started to realize that after the first year, we had a, um, a summer class that was about the, the job market, like applying how to apply for jobs, which mm -hmm. you would normally take at the end of your program if you were interested in academia. 
Um, but the person who was teaching it was leaving. So it was the last time to take it. So it was the summer after my first year and we had to write a, um, a dream job statement, which I find every once in a while and I read and it just kind of makes me laugh at myself. Um, but in that statement, I had talked about teaching, um, and having kind of a balance of being able to do all the things, which included teaching. So I think somewhere near the end of my first year is when I was thinking that that would be something I'd like, cause I liked the possibility of being able to do multiple things. And, um, I just didn't know if I would like the actual teaching, teaching part because I hadn't yeah. taught at that point so but i think that's what it started to started to become an idea very cool and so i i do want to get more to your time as a professor because i know that's probably what people are are curious to know about but was there anything that that stood out during your phd program that you think helped you in your trajectory to become a professor or was like particularly meaningful yeah so i um had experiences that reconfirmed that I didn't want to do clinical work much at all. Um, and that, um, I liked if anything, supervising therapists. So I had mm, to yeah. learn how to become a supervisor. So I was supervising therapists who were then providing the, the therapy. And I enjoyed that a lot more than I enjoyed, um, therapy itself. And then, um, I, figured out that I was pretty good at research. Um, and I liked it. So liking something that you're good at typically feels pretty good. Um, so I knew that that was something that I could enjoy spending my time doing. Like I would get lost in data for hours and it was just fun. Um, and then, uh, I had my first class that I taught ever. Um, at the end of it, I had a student email me, thanking me for the class um, and kind of kind of singing my praises and just saying that he ended the email saying like, if you like decide not to be a teacher, like you're doing a disservice to the world. Wow. <laughs> like, wow okay. Um, but just kind of hearing, hearing that, um, especially after your first time teaching, you're just a ball of nerves and, and mm. syndrome is so high. And so to kind of get that external validation, and then also know like this could be a way that I really could reach a lot of people um, and thinking beyond just the students of the people that they might reach. It felt like it could be a way that I would have the most kind of direct impact on the world in a sense yeah. and something that I also was, was good at. So I think those kind of moments, series of moments combined helped to solidify that that's, that's what I wanted to be in. Very cool. So, okay, so let's jump into the job market. So leading up, you did a, um, mine was a five-year program. I think yours was shorter. Is that right? Four-year? Yeah, it was an average of four, and I took four years. Okay, and so you were, it was the fall, like the beginning of your fourth year or whatever that you were applying to jobs? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And were you applying to just teaching jobs or, uh, I'm sorry, just research oriented professor jobs or teaching jobs, postdocs, all of it, or what were you looking for? All of it. I was looking for yeah. a job. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted something to pay to pay my bills. Um, <laughs> so I had things that I definitely preferred within what mm. I was applying for. But yeah, it was just like, what are the openings? Um, I think there was maybe three that I decided not to apply to out of all the things mm. that were open that year. Um, yeah, I wanted a job. 
Yeah. Do you remember how many applications you put out? Oh, I think it was, I want to say maybe like 20, 20, 25. And then there were definitely still some on the list that I hadn't applied to yet by the time I got my offer. So there's still potential more that I would have yeah, in the 20 yeah. to 25 range. Okay. Do you mind sharing how many uh, of those applications made it to like interview phase? Yeah. So I had, Oh, I'm trying to think. Cause there's the, there's typically two rounds of interviews. Cause you have the mm. first round interview that it's typically over like a zoom and then the in-person interviews. But if I got more zoom interviews than I did in person, um, I want to say zoom interviews, I mean, I think I had around, I want to say five or six. And then in person ones, I had um, the job that I'm at now was actually my very first one. Mm. And then um, I landed at the location of my second in person interview when I got the call about this job offer. Oh man. <laughs> so I remember calling my advisor, like pulling my stuff off the plane, panicking, like what am I supposed to do? Um, and so I had those two. And then in the process of negotiation, I was supposed to be scheduling a third one, which I ended up okay. declining and not going to. Okay. So 20, 25 applications, five to six zoom interviews, two in-person interviews, plus one that you didn't end up going to. And there's a couple uh, that I ended up, like pulling my application from and like had started oh, okay. kind of on the tail end of negotiation stuff. And do you mind sharing, did you have other offers besides the one or did you go ahead and jump on the first one? So you did have multiple offers. Yeah, awesome. I had the two that I went to the on-campus visits, I got offers from both. Very cool. And what, and you're at Iowa, is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's where my job is out of. Uh, that's funny. What, uh, what about Iowa like cinched it for you? The people here, like in the yeah. program, um, I knew, uh, I knew one and I knew of both of them. They were both also FSU grads. And so I knew that they were good people and mm -hmm. I knew that being in an environment that was supportive and collegial was important for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had, um, the other place that I had an offer from also like had good people. So it's not that these people were like bad people. Um, but I think that there's a couple of different dynamics that I picked up on during my on-campus interview that just kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit as mm. to what mm. perhaps the dynamics might be like in the department. So it was a little bit of a red flag. Um, Wait, there's that. weird dynamics in places in academia? What? <laughs> what is this unicorn? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's that and location. Mm. Uh, yeah. I knew that my husband would be happier in Iowa than any other location. Mm. Um, money was better with the Iowa yeah. offer. So that doesn't hurt. Um, and the Iowa position was a CFT position, couple of family therapy. And the other one was not, it was a human development family studies. Ah, uh, okay. Position. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you, do you recall like what your like grad stats were at the time when you were on the job market? Like how many publications you had or small grants or whatever? Yeah, I had, I want to say six pubs that were either published or accepted in press. 
Um, I had a dissertation grant, small little baby grant. Um, I think that's the, I think that's the only grant that I had. Yeah. Well, I had like one for my undergrad that mm. I technically had, but I feel like that doesn't really count as much. So I mainly just had the one. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, there are, I think most of the people that follow this account and listen to the podcast are probably more interested in industry policy, et cetera, just because of the kind of content that I put out. Sure. Um, but I know a lot of them are going to be interested in getting into academia, whether it's, you know, the, you're at an, it's an R1, right? R1 position. Yep. Are you, is it a 2-2? Yes. And for anyone who doesn't know, 2-2 means you teach two classes in the fall semester, two classes in the spring, which is research intensive, whereas full teaching is like a 4-4 or a 5-5 or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's where I was going. So what... What do you think, grad? Obviously, you know we only know our own fields, and it's not all generalizable. But what do you think people need to think about when they're going on the academic job market and looking for these academic jobs? Yeah, I think if you can be, if your life situation makes it so you can, um, being open-minded, um, and I think if you're just getting started knowing that the first job that you go to doesn't have to be your end job. So it's a lot easier to move around once you're in academia versus just getting into it. Hmm. So in any job year is can be so wildly different from the last one. So I was really lucky that my job year, there was a lot of positions that were open and a lot of really good positions that were open. But the year I think before me, um, it was not. And so knowing that you're kind of at the whims of fate or whatever it is that you believe in, um, yeah. and just being kind of open-minded, um, and having, a a backup option, knowing that job stuff might not work out how you want it to, because there's only limited positions and there's, you know, typically more PhD grads than there is positions. And so knowing, um, knowing that, so you just are, have a realistic mindset, I think can be helpful going into it. Yeah. Um, what do you think about your application and not just your application, but like you, your CV, what you brought to the table really set you apart from other candidates for these two positions where you got offers? Yeah, I think I had a solid number of hubs, which definitely helped. I definitely don't think I had like the most out of all the applicants, but I think I was in the higher tier that helped, um, in my recommendation letters. So I had someone who is a pretty well-known name and has had lots of grant funding um, who wrote me a strong letter. And, and I and I know, because I've had other folks tell me that that was one of the things that kind of helped committees to select my application as one to continue to look at, knowing mm-hmm. that someone kind of at that level was, um, that person had nominated me for a graduate student award. And so um, I think that that helped a lot, the whole, you know, who you know kind of thing. Um, and I think once I got my foot in the door, um, I think I think some of it's just personality of kind of the person I am and that I am pretty friendly and kind and extroverted. And so I think a lot of, once you get your foot through the door, a lot of it is just like, do people want to work with you? Um, mm. And so, it because it's fit for faculty too. And so I think 
um, being a good colleague and demonstrating that during my interview process also really helps. Um, and I was very prepared. Um, I got a lot of compliments on my job talk and I think it's cause I rehearsed that thing like 20 million times. I was <laughs> very, yeah. I knew what was like, I knew what was going to come up. I knew what kind of questions I might get. And so I knew how to answer things. And I think that that shows, um, you know, a, a variety of things to people who were attending and faculty that you might be working with. So I think there's a kind of a combination of things the having at least kind of a competitive CV, the number of pubs, the recommendations that I had, um, showing that I was doing some things to try to get funding. And then once I kind of got my foot in the door, being prepared and being um, demonstrating how I could be a good colleague, I think will probably the combination of things that helped the most. Yeah. So I would like to <clears throat> continue to talk about like the faculty position, what life is like, because I think that's kind of like the, the, uh, you know, the thing that people are most curious about. And I did ask for some uh, specific questions from folks on Instagram. And so I have some for you. Okay. Uh, the first one, let's see. How does it feel to be a faculty member? Smiley face. Uh, <laughs> it feels good. Um, <laughs> I think is the short and sweet of it. Um, I think starting out, so when I first got the job, super exciting because that's what I was hoping for. Um, and again, like looking forward to having a real income, not the poverty pay that you get on grad assistantships uh, was also really exciting um, and a little terrifying because I felt um, like I had some skills when I finished my PhD, but it was the moment of like, oh shit, do I know how to do this? <laughs> um, like, I do, what have I gotten myself into? Um, very much that imposter syndrome. So I think exciting, thrilling, and terrifying all at the same time. I've now I've definitely settled into that role, uh, and I feel much much more confident now than I did going into it. And it's, it still feels good. I feel really lucky that this was my first job. Um, I'm getting to do all the things that I hoped that I would get to do. And I still love it, which is awesome, which I don't think many people get to experience. So mm -hmm. now I would say it feels good more in a sense of like, it feels comfortable um, and I'm happy in what I'm doing. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Another question. Uh, has it been difficult at all for you to recruit students and postdocs if applicable? Yeah, I think so. We are a newer program in in the world of couple and family therapy doctoral programs. So that in and of itself has been a little bit challenging. We don't have any senior faculty who have been around and have like a stellar reputation in the field that everyone knows and wants to come and work with. Um, the other, we used to have three faculty and now we're down to two. Hmm. Um, and so all of us were, we're not too far apart in terms of years here. And so being all kind of junior faculty has made recruiting students a little bit more challenging. Um, we, it's been especially challenging lately because our university decided, or maybe it's our college, I'm not sure, decided to only start offering quarter time assistantships, meaning it's only 10 hours a week of stipend pay versus 20 hours. And so that hurts um, mm -hmm. being able to recruit students because, you know, being paid is important. Um, sure. And we don't typically, and how our program functions, we don't typically have postdocs. So that part is kind of an NA. But yeah, I think recruiting students 
um, in finding students who are interested in the stuff that I'm doing, because that's typically a win-win for both of us. Um, so I have a lot of the students I have right now are amazing, but they just aren't interested in some of the stuff that I'm doing. So it makes it a little bit harder in terms of, you know, supporting them in the things that they're doing, getting them to be, um, you know, getting them opportunities for authorship on the things that I'm doing because the fit just isn't quite there. And so um, recruiting students and recruiting students who have overlapping interests has, has been challenging. Very cool. Uh, here's an interesting one. Now that you're a faculty member, uh, what do you do to remedy the toxic culture of academia and promote, and promote healthy work-life balance for you and your students? Yeah, I'm very much, a, um, I try to do what I preach. And so I try to model by example. And so, and I think that's, that's also not just me. It's also the other faculty in my program. And I think in our department, which helps. So the environment I'm in helps me to do that in a way. Um, so I tell my students, like, I don't do things in the evenings. I don't do things on weekends. That's time for me and my family and the other things I want to do outside of work. Um, I'm very intentional most of the time about not responding to email after hours. Um, I used to pre pandemic, um, me and my colleagues would go to the gym over our lunch hour to exercise. And like our students all knew we would do that. And so trying to model, not just saying that a balance is important, but modeling actually doing that. Mm. Um, we're also, we make it very intentional to have a very supportive environment in our program. Um, we very much lean into the metaphor of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats so that everyone has their own trajectory and what they're doing and everyone's going to have their own victories, um, and challenges. And just because someone else's victories are not yours, that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. Um, so very much trying to support each other and what it is that you're doing. And again, we model that as well. So we try to be really intentional about our relationships as faculty, having good, strong relationships and supporting each other and celebrating each other's victories um, to try to show that that's how it can be in an academic program. You don't have to have infighting and, you know, problems and, um, you know, passive aggressiveness. You can have transparent conversations when things are not going great. Um, so very much just talking about that and, and doing it. We have a couple of different um classes-ish, I'd say class loosely, um, where we have meetings about the things that people are doing outside of their coursework. Um, and so a lot of times we kind of slide into conversations about larger processes like academics, like how you navigate challenging situations, um, how to pick up on red flags when you're on an interview, um, you know, having kind of bigger macro conversations about society and what that means in terms of our positionality being in academia. So we make it really intentional to have those kind of broader, big conversations and making space to do that um, versus kind of ignoring that that's what's going on around us um, and talking about for especially those who are wanting to go into teaching programs, you know, how do, how do you intend to do this? Like, when this challenging situation arises, let's talk through how you can handle this because it's going to be difficult. Um, and so having conversations and exposing students to some of the inner workings of academia to help them already start to think about how they can change environments that they're in or that they might be going into as well. Hmm. That's awesome. Uh, all right, last one. There's some good ones in here. Uh, we always hear about the bad parts of academia. What are the good parts? Yeah, 
Um, like I said, I love my job. <laughs> I'm, I think some of it is, you know, I'm lucky at, at where I'm, at where I am at, that there's not a lot of, um, there's always going to be politics no matter where you're at. Right. So there's always going to be a little bit of that, but people handle it like grownups, um, where I am. And so, um, I think before I kind of talk about the good parts, I think it's acknowledging like the system I'm already in is, is set up well. So I can't like mm. claim that it's, you know, not like that in other places. Um, but I think, oh, gosh, this, the students that I get to work with, like seeing them come in and where they're at and then watching their growth over the course of their, you know, trajectories, whatever that looks like and getting to support them in, um, you know, finding whatever position is going to make them happy and seeing how they land and what they do afterwards. Like just getting to watch that process and that journey for me is just really awesome. I love that. Um, and some of the nitty gritty of the working with students when they're struggling with an idea or struggling, learning how to do something and getting to see their light bulb, aha moments, mm-hmm. um, is just really fun. Um, I enjoy teaching. I don't enjoy grading, <laughs> but I enjoy teaching. It's like getting to, um, you know, and I, it, I'm also in the position I'm in, I'm teaching primarily doctoral classes. And so a lot of it is just me facilitating the conversation that the students are having. And so getting to see, you know, how their brains are working, the ideas that they're having, um, the thoughts and questions that they have that I would never think of helps me to continue learning and thinking about the world. And so just getting like constantly getting the opportunity to get my brain juices flowing for me is important. And so I really, really enjoy that. Um, and I do get some chances to work with undergrads. I occasionally will teach undergrad classes and I've had some undergrads, um, do research projects with me as well in my group. And so getting to just also like the same thing, but, but that I enjoy for doc students, but getting to see that progress or process for undergrads is also really fun. Um, I also really enjoy the flexibility of my job. Mm. So right now I'm doing about two days a week at home and three days on campus. And that's entirely by choice. I don't have any way that I have to be. So it's just what I'm, what I want to do. I don't have anyone micromanaging me. Um, I can spend my time how I want to spend my time. And that for me is really important. You know, having breaks in with the semesters because I need that time to recharge. So just how kind of acting me is structured in that way, I really appreciate. And just being kind of an incubator for, for thinking and getting to innovate and create stuff, even though I want days where I want like simple tasks and to just, you know, put my head down and do them having the days where I can do that and also have the days where I'm just, you know, up in the clouds thinking and dreaming about things um, helps for me to have that flexibility. Yeah, that's awesome. So, well, thank you for uh, answering some of those questions from Instagram. Um, I think we've got, yeah, we got like, 20 maybe 30 minutes left so i think where uh i want to go next is back to your experience as a faculty person so you you have been in your position five years Mm -hmm. five years what have those five years been like well i think the first thing to acknowledge is the, the pandemic taking about like half of them yeah Um, so I feel like my experience the last couple of years has definitely been different than the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first shoot, probably the first year was just a, 
what is going on in this place? Like, how, what, what am I doing? Um, just trying to understand the new place that I was in, trying to figure out, you know, the unspoken rules. What is, what is it like to be, you know, a faculty? I remember, you know, when you're, as a student, you don't have a lot of, at least for me, I didn't have a lot of barriers in terms of like what I felt comfortable to talk about with my student peers. Mm. And I didn't know as faculty, like, are you, are you friends with faculty? Like, do you have these same kind of conversations as people, but like as faculty, like what are the behind the scenes interactions look like? So I think a lot of it was just trying for me to get a sense of what, what that was and what kind of the culture was here. Um, so the first year was very much a just trying to figure out what this is like. Um, so I think the second and trying to remember when pandemic happened in my timeline, cause that was 2020. So spring of 2020. So that must've been my third year. Um, so my second year, I felt like I was getting into the groove of things. Um, and started to feel a little bit more solid in my interactions with students. And I actually, we didn't have a cohort that came in my second year. And so I was still pretty, um, I think protected in terms of my research time. And then I wasn't having tons of students that I was having to take on my department chairs chairs, because there was a lot of change happening during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, we're really protective in terms of not me, not taking on too much service. And so I had a lot of time during those first two years to just really settle into my program of research and figure it out, you know, what I wanted to do here um, and get to know other people on campus who were doing similar things. And so that was really nice. Um, I would say over the first three years, I taught a lot, a lot of different classes. And so having to do a lot of class preps um, definitely was a little challenging just because that just takes time and energy. Um, and so I think third year, I was like, okay, I got this faculty thing down, <laughs> I think. Um, and then the spring of 2020 is when, you know, pandemic hit and everything just went haywire and we switched online very, very quickly. Um, and then, you know, I had been doing a little bit remote prior to then, but just then navigating, you know, how do I do this in a way that is still going to be do as much as I can to give my students the same experience that they were getting prior to that, um, while also managing my own experiences and what's happening right now. Um, and so it felt like I was kind of starting over again, right, as I was really getting my feet under me. Um, and not having that connection to people on campus, I realized was really important because I was missing it a lot, like the hallway interaction. Mm -hmm being able to just open my door and ask my neighbor next door a question about things because I still don't know really what the hell I'm doing. Um, so I really had to kind of lean into um, figuring out my own stuff <laughs> and like trusting my judgments. And in some ways I think it was a, a good thing because the first couple of years as faculty, I am like in faculty meetings, I would not say things because I'm like, I don't have anything to contribute. Like all you other people are talking about things. And some of it I don't understand, like budgets. What do these numbers mean? I don't really know. Um, and so I just observed a lot because I didn't feel like I had anything to say or I didn't even know what questions to ask. And so I think being 
kind of forced to work in isolation to a certain extent really made me just trust my own judgments about things. Um, so I think in, in, in some ways it kind of helped my confidence as faculty. Um, so I've definitely kind of seen a shift for myself over the last couple of years of, um, being more confident um, in what I'm doing and my abilities and skill sets um, and feeling more confident in the mentorship that I'm providing for students, the advice that I give students. And so I think I've really kind of, um, I don't know, this sounds cheesy, but like coming to my own as a faculty. Um, finally. Yeah. <laughs> There's still a lot that I don't know and stuff that I'm still figuring out. But I feel like if I could say that I've kind of reached the point of feeling like a faculty member, I think at this point, I feel that. That's awesome. So what, what do you think that uh, PhD students who are aspiring to be faculty members should know about being a faculty member? Like, are there things that you wouldn't have expected um, if you could go back and tell pre-faculty Kayla secrets about the future ahead? Uh, the pandemic, obviously, but about yeah. being a faculty member, anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Um, unspoken responsibilities that you don't realize until you're in it. Um, so like, for example, um, managing difficult student things, mm. um, like having, so when you have good students, things are easier <laughs> and good students. I don't mean like the students themselves are good or bad, but like students who are like not having like, problematic things in terms of like things in your handbook that you're not supposed to be doing kind of situations. Mm. Um, so obviously everyone's going to have their own focus and things that they're doing and like priorities that are going to dictate kind of how they spend their time. And so I'm not talking about like students who are, you know, not interested in research, not that kind of like good or bad. Um, again, not that those are good or bad. Um, but like students who, um, you're having to have a lot of meetings about who you might have to go through like review and retention, all those things take time. Um, and so when you have students who you're having to support more in different ways, that eats up more of your time. Um, and you're having conversations with other faculty that you wouldn't necessarily expect to have and that you might not know how to navigate. Um, so like those types of things you just don't get prepared for as a student. And I don't, and I don't know that there honestly is a best way of preparing for it until you're in it. And it's kind of like a, you know, trial by fire, which sounds horrible, but because um, every situation is going to be so unique. But knowing that there are other things that are not a clear cut responsibility that are going to potentially take up your time. Um, I think it's um, also knowing additional things that you just don't get credit for. So a lot, of some, a lot of universities, I think, are similar in that they have some type of evaluation system that is used to evaluate how you spend your time and your productivity, whatever that looks like. And they're always imperfect systems because what we do is messy and complex. And so there's no perfect way to quantify everything that you do. So there's that component. Like, they're never going to be perfect. Um, but just even preparing all the information to be able to submit your evaluations or to submit your assessments takes time. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of like little tiny things that you end up having to do that don't count towards research, don't count towards teaching or service or advising. 
that um, just don't get recognized that you're you're doing those things, that you're having to spend time doing those things. Um, I think it's also broader institutional, organizational, societal things that kind of bleed into um, what we do. And I don't think that academia is, you know, unique in this, but um, <clears throat> how to navigate conversations around really difficult things that are going on in the world around you um, that have a direct impact on the, the people. Um, you know, if you're in a therapy program like mine that are having an impact on clients, um, so in having those conversations as a student feels very different than having that conversation as a faculty. Um, so figuring out how to navigate that in a way that gives everyone a space to talk while also protecting folks who might be vulnerable to the conversation that's being had. Um, and so I think figuring out how to navigate those things as faculty, because you start to feel responsible for your students' well-being in a certain sense. Um, and there's no playbook for how to handle really difficult conversations. So I think those are some of the things that I just wasn't fully um, prepared for, didn't fully know would be, you know, happening. Um, and then, of course, like managing, this is less so that I've had experience, but I know it happens, managing, you know, just the interpersonal dynamics among faculty um, that are going to inevitably happen. Um, and like, if you're not a numbers budget person like me, figuring out what the hell a budget means <laughs> and what that actually translates into, um, just, I think there's a big learning curve when you first jump into academia as a faculty member of um, the things that you're kind of expected to somehow just know without anyone actually telling you, um, that just takes, I think, a while just to, to get a handle on. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I know we're running a little close on time. What, so I, I know there's a portion, and I've already said this, but I, I know there's a portion of people who are listening who do know that the one thing they want for their career is to get that R1 faculty position. What do you think those grad students should be thinking about in terms of being prepped when they go on the job market? And actually, a job market's going on right now, so yeah. it's kind of timely. Yeah. Um, what, what should they be doing? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're, if it's the time that you're already on <clears throat> the job market, you know, your CV, there's, I think there's not much more at this point that you can do unless, you know, there's like one or two final manuscripts that you're really pushing to get out. I think at this point, like you've done what you've done. So I think at this point, it's kind of leaning in to what you've done, um, and practicing, talking to people a lot before you have to talk to the people who are evaluating you. Um, so like having, <clears throat> you know, lots of people read your statements, read your cover letters, the things that you're submitting. Don't let the committee that you're submitting to be the first person to see those statements. So mm -hmm. as many people that you can, and ideally in a, in a variety of different positions, you know, advisor, hopefully other faculty, peers, family members, even um, having different people look over your materials um, just to make, again, they should not be the first pe person who's seen your statements. And similar for job talks, like practice, practice, practice. Um, per if you have a chance to practice in front of, you know, your faculty, your peers, do it. I think it's also, um, for some folks, it's leaning into the discomfort of bragging about yourself. Mm. So, so much of the materials you're writing, the experience of interviewing 
you're supposed to be highlighting the things that you're doing, the things that you're good at. And that can feel uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I think particularly women just because of how we're socialized. Mm. And so I think um, just like, this is the time to brag about yourself. This is the time to make small things seem like bigger things. And so um, just finding a way to fight through the discomfort of doing that and knowing that that's okay. Um, You know, the people who are like, touting, bragging about the things that they're doing, that's going to be seen as a a good thing by the committee because they're having a chance to see the things that you're good at. Um, I think also on the kind of the tail end of job stuff, negotiating, some people love it. Again, I'm not one of them. I hated that entire process, but it is really important. Um, And you don't, you're not going to get something unless you ask for it. It never hurts to ask. There's definitely kind of a a good way and a bad way to negotiate. Like you don't want to be an asshole (laughs) when you're negotiating. You can do it kindly, um, but like you should negotiate. That's important. What you're getting started with is going to set you up for everything that comes next. And so get advice from other faculty as to what you could be asking for. What's realistic? What are things that you're not going to think of to ask um, that your other other peers or other faculty might ask for? Um, And knowing that like, you're not going to be seen poorly because you've asked. If anything, I think people almost see that with respect. Like, oh, they knew to ask for this. Like, they're advocating for themselves. People see that as a good thing, not a negative thing. Um, <clears throat> so, again, very much leaning into, like, you know the skills that you have. You know where you're at. You know what you're good at. Leaning into that. Brag about it. That's totally fine to do. Um, and giving people context, too. Like, if there's something that happened during your PhD that made, you know, made it that a semester or a year was really difficult that you weren't able to, to do much in terms of output. Like you can give people that context if you feel comfortable doing it. Um, I think especially with the pandemic, everyone's experiencing stress from the pandemic in some way, shape or form. And so I think it's, it's reasonable. It's authentic to be like, yeah, this pandemic was really challenging for me in terms of being able to, you know, do the things I wanted to do. I had restrictions, I had barriers, um, you know, but here's what I learned through it. And here's where I want to go going forward. So you're giving context and then leaning into how that has shaped your experience and how you're going to use that to, you know, be a stronger faculty in the future. So then giving context, sometimes people are unsure about, and I think there's probably mixed opinions about it, but my stance is um, appropriate amount of self-disclosure can be really useful. Hmm. Man, that feels like a great point to me. Have you been on any hiring committees since you've become a faculty member? Yep. Mm-hmm. What do you look for in uh, in potential or in candidates for the position? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so some of it is a little bit of the numbers game, right? Um, you know, do you have the, the kind of numbers on your CV that would um, make you more competitive, but it's not a end-all be-all? So I think it's, it's the numbers button context. Sometimes there are people who have a high number of publications, but they're in really crap journals, for the mm, lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and so that tells us something. Um, the quality of their writing. I think you can pump out a lot of things that are low quality, but that doesn't mean you're actually doing meaningful work. Um, so a little bit of the numbers game for sure. I think in an R1, it's um, the possibility that you could secure external funding so you don't have to have had external funding obviously depending on what rank you're applying to but just showing that you're thinking about it 
Um, whether that's, you know, you saying overtly, um, you know, I haven't had external funding yet, but here are some of the external funding mechanisms I think I could target in the future. So just having a little bit of an inclination to what the, the funding environment looks like and where you might seek funding from. Um, that would be kind of the biggest things I'd look for on paper. Um, the ref reference letters for sure is more of um, like, are there red flags? Are there things we would need to be concerned about reading between the lines in recommendation letters? And then once people are here, it's definitely fit. Um, mm. Usually the ones who I think get weeded out, there's something that they either do or say that like, like, Ooh, that, that didn't feel good. Um, so some of the just interpersonal pieces, as well as, um, you know, how you respond to questions. Um, so some of it is the collegiality, like, are you going to be a problematic person? Um, and then fit in terms of research areas, things that you might teach. Does it feel like this person is going to fit in well and complement the, the program that already exists? Um, I think it's good to remember that both the interviewee and the interviewers tend to be on their best behaviors during interviews. So if something is popping up as like a cringe kind of statement or cringe behavior, that's usually a good indication that there's more behind the scenes. Um, mm. So I think just kind of being mindful, mindful of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Kayla, thank you for chatting with me. We are right at about time. Just the last few things. First one is if there are any folks listening out there who want to reach out to you, get in contact with you, ask a question, or maybe follow along in your journey, how would you recommend they do that? Yeah, you can always email me. Um, so my email, I'll tell you, but you can also find it pretty easily if you just Google my name in Iowa. It pops up on my faculty page. But it's Kayla-Fitzke, that's F-I-T-Z-K-E, at uiowa.edu. Um, I have a Twitter. I don't use it so often, um, but you can follow me if you want to. It's Dr. K. Reed Fitzke. Um, I'll occasionally tweet things, but like I said, not very much. Um, but I'm happy to talk to folks who are trying to navigate the application grad school process. I know that um, I didn't have a lot of help with that. None of my family went to grad school, so I really didn't know anything and I know it can be daunting and there's not much help out there for it so I'm always happy to talk to folks who are trying to figure out just what is happening and what the expectations are very cool awesome all right final thing what is the one thing or one thing that you think everyone should know about life after grad school it gets better <laughs> you can you can have a balance I know that um during grad school, it often feels like you just, like it's never going to end. You just have so much work and the to-do list is never ending. And I think your to-do list will also probably never end just because life is life. Um, but it is possible to have a work-life balance. It is possible to have pay that actually pays for things and gives you the freedom to do other things other than provide for your basic needs. Um, just knowing that there's lots of opportunities once you finish the PhD to do what it is that you find is important. Um, and then it can be a little bit of a, a transition point when, once you're done, because you're so inundated all the time with doing things all the time that suddenly having a balance can feel strange and it's easy to fill it with more work. But like, don't, don't fill it with more work. Do the things 
nap, like watch TV, go for walks, you know, the things that you don't have time to do during grad school, lean into it, embrace it, have a work-life balance, it can happen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kayla. I loved catching up with you and uh, we'll talk to you in the future. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye. Folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of my interview with Kayla today, hearing her talk about her love for her faculty job and getting to interact with and teach students was really refreshing to hear. Be sure to check out the description of today's episode for links to Kayla's email and Twitter account if you want to get in contact with her and follow along in her professional journey. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please like, subscribe, comment, review, or share the podcast. It really does mean a lot to me as a content creator when folks take the time to do something small like leave a review. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. As promised, here are Kayla's responses to some bonus questions. Stay classy, grad students. Kayla, 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 what is your spirit animal? Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's a question to start off with. Hmm. You know, I've been asked this before and I feel like I never have been able to solidify an answer and it changes. I think every single time. Um, what is it today? Today? I think I am a sloth because Mm. I am tired and feel very slow moving and just want the world to like go around me and just chill. Yep. Today I am a sloth. Very cool. Uh, what is your superpower? Not like a made up one and my actual one. Your actual one. Okay. It doesn't have to be your main one. Just like a superpower that Kayla has. Yeah. I think that I am. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Stable is what's coming to mind, but that's not exactly it. Like I am um, almost kind of sloth-like in a way that overlaps nicely of like when stress is going on around me or crisis is going on around me, I'm typically pretty stable and solid. I think that's Very cool. Hell yeah. Okay. And uh, if you could give a gift to every grad student, physical gift, what would it be? Does time count? No. Because <laughs> that's what I'm constantly saying lately is I wish I could give you more time. I wish I could yeah. give myself more time. A physical gift? Ooh. Um. An unlimited gift card for massages. Yeah. I hear that.